We've been considering political theology over the last several weeks as a subset of our Old Covenant series, as we consider how Old Covenant is, how the governance of Old Covenant Israel ought to inform or relate to the way that modern nation states are to be governed. Now, briefly, by way of review, we have seen that even kings, presidents, prime ministers, that do not possess special revelation at all, or do not recognize special revelation as such, are still assumed by biblical authors to be legitimate as they write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so by extension, God recognizes even these kings, presidents, prime ministers who don't possess or don't recognize special revelation as such to be nevertheless legitimate kings, presidents, prime ministers, emperors, whatever. And even if these rulers govern quite poorly, as the Roman Empire uh, did at the time of the writing of Romans 13, they are still... Nevertheless, as Romans 13 calls them, God's servant for your good. John Calvin wrote, even tyranny is better than anarchy. And in that sense, we could say that even a, a poor government is still better than no government at all. And we can still see them then as a God's gift and God's blessing for our civil good. Governments retain legitimate authority even if they misuse it. And so they ought to be obeyed in all things lawful. We've also seen that their job is to rule for the civic good of their constituency, according to natural law. They're accountable to God for knowing and implementing in their constituency what may be known from general revelation, including natural law, which is comprised of those moral requirements which may be discerned by general revelation, and which have been engrafted into the human being directly by God by virtue of having been made originally in His image, in true righteousness and holiness, as Ephesians 4 and verse 24 puts it. That being said, as we saw last week, The civic government ought not to presume to rule over the spiritual lives of its constituency beyond what is required for the civic good. This principle is consistent both with natural law and with special revelation, as both of these endorse the idea that civil authority is inherently limited and has not been given the task nor the jurisdiction to rule religiously in a constituency beyond simply governing aspects of religious life which pertain to the civic good of all society. So, for example, banning child sacrifice or sati, which was the, the practice that William Carey encountered when he went to India where they would burn living widows with their deceased husbands or banning cannibalism or, or things like these. Now, I'm not making an argument for any of these claims tonight. I've already done that at length in previous weeks. So if, if you are listening for the first time and you're disputing some of these conclusions and wondering how we got there, go back and listen to the sermons that, that I've already preached. 
All I'm doing right now is simply reviewing them so that they're fresh in our minds as we come back to this study tonight as a courtesy. Now with these things fresh in our minds again, we will continue tonight with our study of political theology, looking at how moral good and civil good intersect. This is a question that a few of you have asked me. What is the relationship between moral good and civic good? So how can we say that a government is responsible for civic good as distinguished from being responsible for moral good in a given constituency? And here's the first assertion I will make tonight. Generally and ideally, conformity in a society to the moral law of God leads to the highest civil good. We can make this case both from special revelation and from general revelation. Beginning with special revelation, Psalm 1, for example, which we sang earlier in the service, teaches us that great blessedness is attached to meditating on and walking according to God's law as opposed to walking in the counsel of the wicked standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers. The man, and I think it may be reasonably inferred, the society which delights in the law of the Lord and on it meditates day and night is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is a general principle based on the idea that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, as Psalm 1-6 puts it. Which doesn't mean that the Lord is unaware of the way of the wicked, but it means that there's no special attention, no, no providential care, no benevolent noticing of the way of the wicked. Whereas there is this providential noticing, this benevolent care and attention given to the way of the righteous. This is what it means when it says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. There seems to be, taught to us in Psalm 1, a special divine care attached to those who study and do God's law. And of course, there is the well-known verse... In Proverbs 14.34, which says, Righteousness exalts a nation. Both of these verses are related to the approbation or approval and blessing of God. As Christians, we shouldn't have a hard time with the idea that God is watching what we do as a society. That shouldn't be a shocking or... or implausible concept to us as Christians. That God is looking on and watching and observing and He's either looking on approvingly or He is looking on condemningly in any particular instance or with respect to any particular trajectory that we're on. The Scripture speaks to this issue further indirectly when it speaks about the cause and effect Results of righteousness and sin. Jeremiah, for example, says in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 23 that as a result of Judah's sin, quote, I looked on the earth 
And behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. Hmm, where you heard those words before? There is a decreation associated with Judah's sin. Via an allusion back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 where, where the earth was without form and void and there was darkness. The earth is poetically said to have returned to its pre-created state of void and formlessness and darkness as a result of Judah's sin. So as opposed to resulting in light, order, and life, which God brought to this formless and void and dark existence in the beginning, and which God commanded Adam and Eve to continue to work towards in this earth, light, order, and life, sin takes us back to formlessness and void and darkness. So the scripture teaches us both that righteousness is going to lead to God's approval and approbation, as well as the fact that there's just a, a cause and effect relationship between righteousness and the flourishing of society and sin leading us back in a regressive way to darkness and formlessness and void. General revelation concurs with this assessment. What is the result of murder or homosexuality? Taking to its logical conclusion, the extinction of the human race. What is the result of theft and adultery and other things like these? Conflict and even war. Think of the Trojan War, for example, caused by Paris' adulterous relationship with Helen. Or just go down to Sky Mall tomorrow afternoon and steal someone's wallet. See whether it leads to, to flourishing and harmony. Sin does not result in a better, healthier, more stable society in which everyone flourishes, but it leads rather to destruction and conflict and war and a society which, which crumbles and is eventually consumed. So there is this general principle and this ideal that conformity to the moral law of God in society would lead to the highest civic good. I want to connect those first. With that being said, there are exceptions to the rule. Sometimes individuals and societies will suffer temporarily for doing what is morally right in God's eyes. And doing moral good will not actually lead to civic good. Our then Governor General and now President Sandra Mason's 2020 throne speech contained the following excerpt, which uh, was shared in our members chat this week, so this is nothing, nothing new if you watch that video clip. The legal systems of modern societies recognize many different forms of human relationships. Barbados is now increasingly finding itself on international lists, including within the multilateral system, which identify us as having a poor human rights record. Barbados does not conduct business 
trade with itself or give itself loan funding. In some cases, our human rights record, when viewed against modern international standards, impacts other issues, these other issues, and how we are viewed among the global family of nations. On this matter, the world has spoken. If we wish to be considered among the progressive nations of the world, Barbados cannot afford to lose its international leadership place and reputation. Nor can a society as tolerant as ours allow itself to be blacklisted for human and civil rights abuses or discrimination on the matter of how we treat to human sexuality and relations. My government will do the right thing, understanding that this too will attract controversy. Equally, it is our hope that with the passage of time, the changes we now propose will be part of the fabric of our country's record of law, human rights, and social justice. In that regard, my government is prepared to recognize a form of civil unions for couples of the same gender, so as to ensure that no human being in Barbados will be discriminated against in the exercise of civil rights that ought to be theirs. The settlement of Barbados was birthed and fostered in discrimination, but the time has come for us to end discrimination in all forms." End quote. Well, essentially she's arguing that if we follow God's moral law, it will not lead to our civic good. And we will suffer for it on the international scene. We have to admit, she may not be wrong. Well, God may providentially bless us somehow, making a way for us to retain our standing and our economic stability in the modern world in spite of non-conformity to progressive ideology. It is quite possible that He will not intervene in this way. After all, we are not in the same covenant that Old Covenant Israel was in, whereby Barbados is promised temporal blessings for obedience and threatened temporal curses for disobedience. We just don't have the claim that if we stand on God's law, then one, one will put to flight a hundred or whatever. I can't remember the exact ratio that it is. We just don't have this promise available to us. And so it is the case as our, our president or then governor general observed that doing what we Christians would understand to be moral good may not be unequivocally and, and may not unequivocally and definitively lead to civic good for the nation of Barbados. We've got to grant that. However, and this is the counterpoint, is money and economic stability the be all and end all? Does a nation which gives up a commitment to objective truth and reason and a principled commitment to morality not lose more than it gains by exchanging these things for money? In other words, if, or not in other words, by way of analogy, if someone came to you tomorrow and offered you $100 to do something Shameful that will that would trouble your conscience and say jeopardize uh, trust within your marriage or something like this. Like, sure, you're going to lose by not doing that thing. You're going to lose that hundred dollars, but wouldn't you actually lose more 
if you accept the $100 and yet undermine the fabric of trust in your marriage or something like this. So I don't think, I don't think it's exactly as simple as if we want to see Barbados thrive civically, then we got to compromise morally. I don't, I don't allow such a, such a basic false dichotomy. I think that there, there may be other options here. I would concede, however, that it may not be good temporally for us in one way to hold the line on moral law in this case. And that's the, that's the point I'm really trying to make, is that moral law and, and moral good and civic good do not always exactly correspond. Sometimes you actually suffer temporally for doing good. That's true on the individual level, and it also may be true on the national level. Anyway, I'm not trying to resolve that particular issue tonight. I raised it simply as an example to illustrate that point that I'm trying to make. That moral good does not always result in civic good, temporal good in the world in which we live. Suffering for doing good is the first exception to the general principle that moral good does generally lead to civic good. The second exception is this. There is biblical precedent for managing sin rather than idealistically trying to eradicate it altogether. And this is why I read from Matthew 19 at the beginning, which you may have been wondering what that has to do with political theology and the governance of nations. In Old Covenant law, we read in Matthew 19, there was provision for managing sin realistically rather than idealistically trying to eradicate it, insisting on perfect conformity to God's moral law. Jesus affirms in Matthew 19 that the ideal thing is for spouses to work out issues with one another. He says, first and foremost, in answer to their question, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And that's it. And I remember listening to Vadi Bakum on this passage. And he said, if these guys didn't ask a second question, that would be all that Jesus taught us about the lawfulness of divorce. And that point needs to be taken in. Now, these guys do ask a second question. They say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So first of all, Moses never commanded divorce. He merely allowed it. And why did he allow it? Under God's direction, he allowed it. First of all, Moses wasn't acting contrary to God. But Moses allowed it, and therefore God allowed it, because of the hardness of the Israelites' hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. It's reiterated again. So there is the ideal moral good, 
but then there is a civil concession for less than the ideal moral good. So what we see here is a provision for managing sin rather than idealistically trying to eradicate it altogether. Listen carefully to me here and do not misquote me on this point because I don't need any controversy that results as a result of what I did not say. Okay, listen. Divorce is always a result of sin on someone's part or on the part of both spouses. One or the other or both. Either he or she or both have sinned when a couple gets divorced. There is no such thing in God's eyes as a no-fault divorce. It is impossible for a divorce to have occurred and no one to have sinned. Alright? This means that divorce is never ideal morally. However, God does not dismiss the questions, what if this happens or what if that happens in a marriage? God doesn't say, well, never mind that. Divorce is not ideal. What God does in the Old Covenant is regulates divorce instead of outlawing it altogether. This sets a precedent for for the permissibility of modern nation states choosing to regulate instead of outlaw altogether things which really ought not to be happening at all in an ideal world. For example, drunkenness. From 1920 to 1933, in the United States of America, there was a policy of prohibition, which in Wikipedia's words, quote, strictly prohibited the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages, end quote. Well, this was well-intentioned, and there is some evidence of health benefits per capita, The result of prohibition was not uniformly civic good, but actually was a serious threat to civic good, especially in some counties where bootlegging became big business and illegal stills and breweries popped up and criminal gangs took control of an illegal process of manufacturing and distributing illegal alcoholic drinks. Eventually, the U.S. government decided to regulate the production, importation, transportation, sale of alcoholic beverages, including laws about public drunkenness, and there are laws in in at least some jurisdictions about not serving intoxicated people at bars and so on and so forth, regulating as opposed to idealistically trying to eradicate the abuse of alcohol in the country. Given that people would still, and the prohibition proved it, given that people would still find a way to buy, sell, and abuse alcohol anyway. In other words, we could say it like this, because of the hardness of our hearts. Right? 
So biblically, this is an acceptable civic choice, though drunkenness remains morally unacceptable in God's eyes. Alright, so civic governments may legitimately decide to regulate sin rather than idealistically endeavor to ban it altogether if it is in the interest of civic good. Alright, now listen carefully again. This one might get me in hot water, but let me, let me be in trouble for what I do say and not what I don't say. Listen carefully here. With this in mind, I won't attempt to re- resolve the debate tonight, but I will raise the question to stimulate our thinking about the principles involved here. What bearing does this principle and the case study of prohibition in the United States of America have on the question of legalizing recreational marijuana use? Are the civic benefits of taking a hard line against recreational use and continuing to fight the criminal distribution of the substance better than the trade-off that would ensue upon legalizing recreational marijuana use. A two kingdoms paradigm allows some room for discussion on a subject like this in which many Christians may have intuitively thought that there is actually no room at all for discussion on this subject given that, hear me clearly, using marijuana recreationally is a sin. Alright? Likewise, here's another example. Or another, another, not another example, another discussion point. Two Kingdoms political theology allows for incremental progress on the issue of abortion rather than necessitating an idealistic call for the complete and immediate abolition of abortion which is morally correct which is morally correct but may not actually result in the same degree of public support I've shared with you before the example that someone from another generation shared with me a while back this was before my time and I've tried to no avail to research it online but I can't I can't come up with the exact dates or details, but let me give you the contours of this scenario. From what I'm told, I think it was in the 1980s, I believe, Canada was having an election coming up, and there was a, I think it was the Conservative Party of Canada was going to uh, hold, hold the line on keeping abortion at uh, two up, legal up to the end of the second trimester. So third trimester abortions would be illegal. That was the status quo and the conservative government was going to maintain the status quo. Or sorry, the conservative party. The liberal party was going to make all three trimesters legal. Then there was a Christian party of some sort, you know, the kind that pop up in what at the time was basically a two-party system where you basically have either the conservatives or the liberals are going to get in. And the Christian party was running on a strong anti-abortion platform of no abortion at all. 
whatsoever. What happened was that many Christians decided it would not be biblically permissible to vote for the conservative party, given that they were going to re- remain, it was going to remain the case that abortions would be legal up to the end of the second trimester. And so being conscience bound that it would not be appropriate to vote conservative, they, they voted for the Christian party, which was basically a small third party. What happened was the conservatives very narrowly lost the election. The liberals won the election. Abortion became legal in Canada all the way up to and including your due date, which it still is. And the Christian party didn't gain any seats at all in that election. But the vote was split significantly because of the way that the Christian vote, the Christian Christian swing vote went. All right? Two kingdoms political ideology allows for incremental progress on issues like this, such that we could say it would be more civically good for abortion to be illegal in at least the third trimester than for it to be legal in all three because we are idealistically pushing for complete and total abolition right now. Right? And again, I'm not saying what you have to do in a situation like that, but I'm, I'm raising the issue that there, there is actually some room for saying what is morally good and then what is ideally and then what is realistic in terms of pursuing civic good may not be exactly the same thing. And, and working towards the most civic good might not always, or might mean, in some cases, as was the case with divorce in Matthew 19, making concessions with respect to how we regulate sin rather than idealistically trying to eradicate it altogether. So in the common kingdom, right? remember we're not talking, we're not saying what the common kingdom does is always right. We're not saying that the common kingdom can decide what is morally good and what is not morally good. God has said, and it stands, what is morally good and what is not morally good. But even in Old Covenant Israel, God himself made a concession to regulate sin given the hardness of hearts present in Israel rather than idealistically pursuing the moral bullseye which sets a precedent for modern nation states to do the same thing. And so we need to at least allow room for discussion and thinking about how we might pursue the closest Conformity to moral good while at the same time being realistic of the hardness of hearts in society around us and figure out how to live in as good of a civic society as we can given the fact that we are dealing with hardness of heart around us. According to the scriptures, some compromise is allowable in civic society in keeping with the realistic observation that mankind has fallen 
and people are not always going to do what is right. Sometimes regulating is better than outlawing, and sometimes incremental progress is better than no progress at all. Now, our hope then is not that the civic kingdom, that the common kingdom will be entirely reformed and remade to be perfect. There's so much, there's, there's too much realism and accounting for the sinfulness and the fallen, the fallenness of mankind within this paradigm to think naively that the civic kingdom will ever become what we wish for and what we long for and that it will ever hit the moral bullseye. Does that mean that all hope is lost? Thankfully not. Because we are dual citizens, remember. And there is another kingdom. And there is a coming kingdom. Which is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of Christ. And as I've been beating this drum over the last several weeks, there is a day coming when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. And we are told that we will live with Him in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And in that society then, no one will ever suffer for doing good. Moral good and civic good will be forever wed. We won't simply be managing sin in the kingdom of heaven. When Christ returns and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, He will eradicate sin and will not just be trying to manage it and regulate it as much as possible in the meantime. And all of these things will be beautifully connected for all eternity. What the common kingdom is, is an outflow and an outworking of God's patience with fallen, ungodly humanity. And it's an, it's an institution from God which creates space for the existence and the preservation even of people in rebellion to Him until Christ returns. It's an outworking of what Jesus said in that parable in Matthew 13, that the wheat and the weeds will grow together until the time when the wheat is gathered into His barn and the weeds are taken outside to be burned. And so the, the common kingdom, the civic kingdom, is really just a temporary thing in which we have some provision for it to be kind of decent until Jesus comes back. But our real hope is in the return of Christ and in the reign of Jesus. Where, as we read in Hebrews, at present, we do not see everything subject to Him. But then, we will indeed see everything subject to Christ Jesus. Of course, the way into that kingdom is by turning from our sins, repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus, being reconciled to Him. We become dual citizens. And then we have this great hope that however good or bad Barbados or America or Australia or China or North Korea or Canada or wherever becomes, 
we know that whatever happens in these temporal civic kingdoms, we know that Jesus is coming back. And we have this great hope that then moral good and civic good will be perfectly and ideally connected. And whatever disparities that we may experience in the here and now between moral good and civic good will be rectified.